Hello, and welcome to Fun Fact Collectors. I'm Jadrian. And I'm Brad. Some people collect stamps, some people collect coins. We collect fun facts, and now you do too. Welcome to the club, nerd. So yes. I started doing notes, as I told you the other day, about one topic. And then the deeper I got into that topic, I actually found a different topic that I wanted to cover. So I have mm-hmm. set aside the first set of notes that I have done, and we have moved into a new a new category. Isn't that just, just the way that it's supposed to go, where it's, yeah. it's all about the wormholes? That's That's how it happens. And I have a bunch of notes under my intro section for suggestions of how to get into this. But I think the cutest one I want to do, and I apologize, maybe we'll post a picture of this on Instagram because this is a very visual situation. But I knew that I had somewhere these books that I was so into when I was a kid. And I'm going to hold them up for you. Okay. Five minute whodunits and baffling whodunit puzzles. And so they're just collections of like two to three page stories where you read it and then it gives you a question of like what flaw did the detective find in the witness's story or how did he know that this guy was the criminal and you Mm -hmm. have to kind of figure out the puzzle and even though i was a big coward as a child who did not like anything scary and i mostly still don't i was very much into these like crime puzzles Mm -hmm. so today i'm going to tell you about whodunits concept of books no mysteries no 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 there's so much more to it than that okay now i know you remember there was the murder mystery party no you didn't attend this actually the murder mystery party that i planned yeah and orchestrated oh okay i thought for some reason you weren't there yeah i think i played charlie or something i have no idea i I don't remember the names yes i remember all the pictures so when we were in university i made all of my friends attend a quote-unquote party that was a scripted murder mystery where they had to go through all of the different things and then figure out who the murderer was. And I thought it was a lot of fun, and it was not the most well-organized, but it was great. And before it that... had heart. When, it had heart. Thank you. When you and I were in high school, we went to a murder mystery play, dinner theater, yes, which was also fun. So... Murder mysteries, that is kind of the type of whodunit that I'm talking about. But I will differentiate for you the difference between like a murder, like a mystery novel and detective novel versus an actual whodunit. So we're going to go way, way back, way, 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 way back. And I have titled this section Old Testament is back on its BS. So to ease us into it, there is a story in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament called Susanna and the Elders, which is kind of referenced as like one of the earliest examples in, well, I guess now in the English language, not originally in the English language, of a of a, a kind of a crime drama, which is really interesting. So basically the premise, Susanna and the Elders, there's a pretty married lady who is taking a bath in her garden by herself. And these Two old, creepy fellas bump into each other while they are both separately spying on her taking a bath. And they're like, ah, we're both being creepy. You know what? Let's go up to her and demand that she have sex with us. And she refuses. 
So they go to the local magistrate, I guess, the political authority, and have her arrested for adultery, claiming that they saw her boning a young man under a tree. So, So their defense is, your honor, we were peeping on her in the bush when we totally saw her fornicating out of marriage. Seize her. Correct. Ah, the patriarchy, the good old days. They try and blackmail her for not having sex with them. So young Daniel of the titular Book of Daniel interrupts before they can put her to death and says that the two old men should be questioned separately. And so when they do Mm. that, one old man says that it was a mastic tree. If you don't know what a mastic tree is, I googled it. It's a shrubbery, and one says that it's an oak tree. So the clear disconnect between the two stories when they're questioned separately and the clear size difference between those types of trees make it clear that they were lying and then they are put to death and they let her go off on her married way. I feel like they're awful quick to put people to death in this story. Like, yeah. Like, kind of jumping the shark. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of death in the Bible. You <laughs> may remember that it is famous for one death in particular, but there are many in there. But the, the key part of this is that this is not a puzzle. There's kind of just one narrative that is happening and everybody finds some, everything out at the same time. Another example of an ancient text is A Thousand and One Nights. Um, which is a series of stories. And one of the stories is called The Three Apples. This gets closer to like a murder mystery whodunit because the premise of the story is that a fisherman discovers a locked chest in a river and just, I guess, decides it's his to sell. So he sells it to the local religious slash political leader who opens it and finds the body of a young woman cut into pieces inside. So he orders his political advisor, who is named Jafar. I put, oh, okay. yeah, I put several exclamation marks in a bracket there. So he orders hmm. his good buddy Jafar to find the murderer in three days. And what happens if he doesn't find the murderer in three days? Put to death. Correct. <laughs> I feel oh. like this is this is the Parks and Rec scene. The other one. I've with, never uh, seen Parts and Rag. Oh, nobody okay. come for me. I gotta send it to you. I'll I'll send you the link. But it, actually, about last episode talking about Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela, they have like a political advisor, not a magistrate, up from Venezuela on like an exchange program, and he's talking about the reasons you go to jail. And it's like you undercook fish, go to jail. Overcook fish, believe it or not, also to jail. <laughs> so. The ways that this story is same at, or like similar to a modern detective story is there are clues that he has to follow. There are multiple plot twists. It starts with the crime or the evidence of the crime mm-hmm. and then works backwards to find like the criminal, the murderer and the motive and everything. But it's different in that Jafar doesn't really care. <laughs> Even though they're like, we're going to put you to death. He only finds the murderer because the murderer confesses. And then it then he's assigned another task, which is to like find the person who put the murderer up to it or in three days or he'll die. And he only solves that one through happenstance. I thought you were going to say after he finds the murderer, his task is to murder, (laughs) to execute the murderer or be executed. No. He's just kind of like, yeah, bumbling through it. But there Uh, are like clues and plot twists. So there are lots of 
others, including some out of ancient China. But the ones in ancient China were really different, which is why I didn't include one here. And some examples of how they're different is that the criminal and the crime and the criminal's reasoning is all explained in the beginning. So it's not a puzzle. Oh. Um, and often there's like supernatural elements where like ghosts of people who have been murdered are accusing the their murderers. And there are hundreds of characters with multiple unrelated crimes all happening at the same time. I kind of want to watch like this like nightmare ensemble as a movie <laughs> just just for the sensory overload. It's so I can't remember how many stories were included within this like compendium but like thousands there are so many so the beginning of kind of like the modern western detective fiction that we know of today you know there's stories coming out of france out of denmark the title of the first english detective fiction that we would recognize today is debated but in the running 1837 by william evans burton called the secret cell which may have actually been written, there's some conspiracy theories out there, that it was actually written by Edgar Allan Poe because Mr. Burton was Poe's publisher. And then only a few short years later, in 1841, Edgar Allan Poe published The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which was the first use of the word detective in English. Okay, where's the word detective come from? I didn't put that in here! <laughs> Oh, you'd like me write to this. I You're know. like, this is the first use of this word in English. We'll have to put it in follow-up, but oh, I just goodness. got really excited about that fact and I didn't look it up. I did look up the etymology of a whodunit, so I'll give okay. you that piece later. Well, is it, hmm, I wonder if Hoomst has performed this crime on... <laughs> Maybe. So then, those are both short stories. And then we also have some novels. So, 1853, Charles Dickens, Bleak House, which I have right here. I haven't read it, but I own it. Because, of course, I do. I think you get half credit for that. This one, 1861 to 63, I assume it was published as a serial, The Notting Hill Mystery. That actually is an unknown author. We don't know who wrote that. And 1868, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which I have not read or had ever heard of before. But who do you think is the most famous detective in English fiction? Batman. Did you say Batman? Yeah, he's the world's greatest detective. No, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Do I have multiple copies of the complete collection? Yes, this is just one of the copies you can see <laughs> that is about four inches thick. They can't see, but I, I can vouch that she is holding up a book that is about yes. four inches thick. And now I'm going to tell you a brief overview of one of my favorite of the Sherlock Holmes stories, which is called The Redheaded League. Okay. Um, I guess it goes without saying that Sherlock Holmes is a character created by Arthur Conan Doyle. He's super popular. He's been reimagined in modern media many, many He's times. No He's no Batman, but you're wrong, and I'm going <laughs> to tell you why. So the Red-Headed League. So it starts with Mr. Wilson, who is a red-haired pawn shop man in London. He comes to Sherlock Holmes with a strange story. Weeks before, his assistant, Mr. Spaulding, had seen a newspaper advertisement offering highly paid work to red-haired men only from the Red-Headed League. And so Mr. Spaulding encourages his boss, Wilson, to apply. Wilson waits in line to be interviewed by the Red-Head in charge and ends up being the only man hired because his hair is the exact right shade of red. 
So every day from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., he sits in the Redheaded League's office alone, copying pages out of Encyclopedia Britannica, which is basically a make-work project, apparently created by a redheaded American millionaire as an excuse to give redheaded men money out of his will. This is the premise we're working with. <laughs> okay. After eight weeks, he shows up to the office and there's a note on the door that says the League has been dissolved. The landlord has never heard of the League or of the redheaded man who hired him. So he goes to Sherlock Holmes. Holmes visits the pawn shop that Wilson owns, meets the assistant, Spalding, who encouraged Wilson to apply for the position, and then returns later in the night with a cop and a banker saying that a crime is about to be committed. Can you guess what's up in the story? You're not supposed uh, to be able to, just for the uh, record. Yeah, but I want to put a, a guess out. Um, I think that the employee invented it because he was bored. Okay, well, uh, you're half right. a terrible guess. You're Yay! half right. So it turns out that the assistant, Spalding, is actually a criminal under an assumed name. He's actually Mr. Clay, who planned to break into the bank vault with his redheaded accomplice by tunneling through the cellar of the pawn shop. And he needed a way to get his boss out of the way for a few weeks so that he could dig. So Holmes solves all of this through abductive reasoning when he met Spalding at the pawn shop because he notices that there is a hollow space under the pavement near the pawn shop and he notices that Spalding's trouser knees are dirty and worn. How does he notice this, the, the tunnel under the pawn shop? He, does like, he have radar vision? No, he has like a cane and he like bonks ah. on the pavement a couple of times and hears the sound. So, fun fact, the difference between the different types of reasoning, deduction, induction, and abduction, now, this threw me for a bit of a loop, but I think I understand the the concept. Deductive he, reasoning is making an inference based on widely accepted facts. So the example, a sandwich is defined as two or more slices of bread or a split roll having a filling in between. Ergo, a hot dog is a sandwich. Oh, don't start this. Don't start the what is a sandwich. Have you seen the sandwich alignment charts? I'm it's just a whole saying thing. that is deductive reasoning. Whether or not it's right or wrong, that's an example of deductive reasoning. So okay. inductive reasoning is making an inference based on observations and probability. So, for example, four out of six people order the same sandwich at lunch. So you reason that the sandwich is probably pretty good. Mm-hmm abductive reasoning, which is what Sherlock Holmes does, is making a probable conclusion from known information, even if that information is incomplete. So for example, you come into my house, you see that there's a sandwich on the counter with only a couple of bites taken out of it. So you use abductive reasoning to say that I must have remembered something I needed to do and left in a hurry. Wow. I think I've used deductive wrong forever. <laughs> and I think so is all society. Yeah, it's there's really subtle differences between them. And it actually yeah. took reading several different websites and several different examples for me to get it. But that's kind of abductive reasoning really to me. It seems like jumping to conclusions. But 
Sherlock Holmes uses it because he's a fictional genius and therefore he's often correct. But it makes it really difficult for the reader who's reading the story to actually figure it out with him. So in the Sherlock Holmes story, does is it written that, oh, Sherlock Holmes is walking down the street banging his cane like he does and he, he heard there was something amiss? Or like it's just Sherlock Holmes walks into the shop and says, ha ha ha, I've got you now. On my way in, I noticed that it was hollow outside. No, it's like, more are like, you, are you... so when it's actually when he's noticing it's hollow, it's like the description would be, you know, he walks up to the pawn shop and as he's talking to the guy, he taps his cane on the ground. And then he, well, you know, stares at the man's pants a lot and then wanders away. But because yeah. Sherlock Holmes is narrated by Watson, so Watson doesn't get to see the benefit of the inner workings of Sherlock's brain. He's supposed to be kind of like the everyman. Yeah. So it's not until Sherlock does the whole explanation at the end that you actually understand that when he was tapping, he was listening for the hollow sound. And when he was staring at this man's pants, he wasn't trying to make him uncomfortable. He was like looking at how worn his knees were. Mm -hmm. So that makes a detective fiction unique or a, a whodunit unique from a detective fiction so okay. in a whodunit the crime is a puzzle and the reader is given the information necessary to work through the puzzle at the same time that the character investigating the crime is going through the solving process so it lets you try to solve along there is a hallmark of a double narrative so there's an open narrative which is the investigation to solve the crime the investigator is discovering the crime, following the clues, and questioning witnesses and suspects. And then there's also a second hidden narrative, which is gradually revealed working backwards, which is the reconstruction of the crime and the motive, the means, and the opportunity leading to the crime. So they're kind of overlaid, and as you proceed through one, you reveal the other. And the story unfolds uh, in relation not to a future event, but one that is already known and merely lying in wait. That is a concept that I have stolen from this person whose name I'm going to try and pronounce, Svetin Todorov. Fun fact, the term whodunit was coined by book reviewer Donald Gordon in 1930 while he was reviewing The Half-Mass Murder by Millward Kennedy. Whodunits became super popular during the 1920s and 1930s. That was called the golden age of detective fiction. And can you name one of the most famous authors from the golden age of detective fiction? Batman. Oh my gosh. It's not Batman. It's Agatha Christie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love her. I do. Yes, I do really enjoy the murder on the orient express we watched a, a recent movie i'm sure it's been movieified several times i think it came out with the murder on the riverboat nile I think it, uh, death on the out, nile yeah that's yeah that's the same that. creators yeah the, the orient express is a train that still runs you can still take that train i'm gonna derail you here for a minute you're gonna deal ra derail me onto trains yeah we're gonna derail you should do a train, train episode uh, gestures yeah, His eyebrows maybe. are going wild. But I guess, okay. And I, I, I know it's a bit of an antiquated term, but when you hear the Orient, mm -hmm. where do you picture? China. Right. But isn't it more like Siberia? Well, where where do you think a train called the Orient Express takes you to? China. Wrong. Do you know where the Orient Express 
route ran. Doesn't it go through like Russia? No. Oh. The Orient Express line, historically and, and contemporaneously, runs from like Western Europe, right? Not really important where, right? But you know, from like Germany, France, and it runs all the way to the east, all the way to the start of the Orient in Istanbul slash Constantinople in modern Turkey. Oh, that's what the that's what the Orient Express takes you. Because it's like, all right, you've technically crossed into Asia now. You're basically in the Orient. <laughs> Good luck figure out the rest of the way to China. I That's guess. wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's your problem now. Okay, returning to Agatha Christie, if anybody wants a book recommendation, I really liked her book called, it's N or M. It's just the, the letters, N or M. It's good. It's one of my faves. Also, And Then There Were None was really good. That was originally published under the title 10 Little Indians. Now it is called and then there were none for obvious reasons. But the story's good. And she also has detectives like the famous, you already mentioned, Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express. That is Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. And we might do a whole episode on her someday because she has a really interesting life, including a real-life mystery that is yet to be solved to this day about her life. So fun fact... Whodunits are considered to be a British style of writing, and they often took place in locations like secluded English country homes, whereas American crime fiction is much darker and grittier, like Batman. Batman. Miss Marple is literally a nosy old lady who, like, knits her way through mysteries. (laughs) She goes to visit her homie in another town and is like, hello, I'm here to bake pie and gossip about the neighbors. And then solves the mystery by gossiping about the neighbors. There are a bunch of common tropes. So like locked rooms. That even has its own subgenre of locked room mysteries. There's a specific locked room mystery in the collection of Sherlock Holmes. Where if I remember correctly, the conclusion is that a monkey did it. And I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) Um, There's like a cozy remote location. There's all kinds of red herrings. There's more than one murder or more than one murderer. There's a fake death. Spoiler alert, that takes place in And Then There Were None. Everyone is collected together for like a big reveal where the detective explains the whole mystery. And the character that looks like the most likely suspect turns out to be innocent and the most unlikely suspect is guilty. I did wake up at like three in the morning last night and go, is Scooby-Doo a whodunit? And I googled it, and yes, Scooby-Doo is sometimes referred to as a whodunit, but that was that whole like unlikely suspect thing that made me think that. Um, So you already mentioned a couple of pop culture things, but in differentiating crime dramas from whodunits, there are lots of adaptations of Sherlock Holmes. The most famous one is probably The Beneficial Cucumber benedict cumberbatch adaptation but there's also i mean there's even like a a will ferrell adaptation that's like a a comedy yeah i think it's like 2011 but it's like him and the the guy from stepbrothers and they do like a comedic sherlock holmes take which is actually i think a parody of the robert downey jr sherlock holmes adaptation but i mean they go all the way back through like the 50s and 60s and even earlier. As long as Sherlock Holmes has been alive, there have been adaptations. Alive, quote-unquote. Been alive. (laughs) (laughs) There is Murdoch Mysteries. That's a Canadian one. Criminal Minds, Bones. Those are all crime dramas, though. Under the kind of 
whodunit category. There's Murder, She Wrote, which I am ashamed to say I haven't seen any episodes of, but is like, I believe, one of the longest running shows of all time. Clue, the movie, 1985, with Tim Curry, which I know that you've seen because we've watched it together. Top 10, that's a good movie. And also the board game. Clue, the board game is a whodunit. Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, which you mentioned, those are actually, those are just the newest adaptations. There are adaptations from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Again, like Agatha Christie, they've been making movies about her works as long as she was writing them. One that I watched really recently, there was Knives Out, and then recently Knives Out Glass Onion came out, which was really, really good. I really recommend it. If you haven't seen Glass Onion yet, watch it. You know me, I'm not a a spooky movie person it's not spooky it's not spooky that's the great thing about whodunits they're not scary clue the movie is not scary you know what i mean like it's 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 almost campy it's like fun it's more about the fun of the puzzle and less about the horror of the murder which is again what differentiates it from like crime dramas or like that that divide between like British whodunits and American gritty crime. Mm. Zodiac, which is about Zodiac Killer. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's very, very good. It's iconic. Listed on here was Pokemon Detective Pikachu, which is apparently <laughs> considered to be a whodunit. Yeah, and I think you could handle that one. Oh, I've seen Detective Pikachu. I yeah. like I like Yeah, like mystery stuff. Like I have yeah. on my bookshelf back here. I have a copy of The Maltese Falcon. I've never read it, but I think about it sometimes. Well, I will bring you to another book that I now recently have on my bookshelf. I meant to mention in the section regarding the Redheaded League, part of the reason I love that story is because, as you know, my husband is a redhead. Also, my husband recently, out of nowhere, bought this book, which is called Kane's Jawbone. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. It's wild for other people who also haven't heard of it. I had kind of tangentially heard of it, but not really dug into it until now. But it is a unique murder mystery puzzle book, which is written by Edward Powis Mathers, with under the pseudonym Torquemada. Uh, he was a cryptic crossword creator, and more on that in future episodes. Eyeball emoji. <laughs> This is the literary podcast. The cryptic crossword creator. So fun fact, the origins of the word pseudonym, because I knew you would want to know, it's in the Greek word pseudonymous, which means bearing a false name. So Greek speakers, it's like a combination of pseud, which means false, and onima, which means name. Mm. And Mather's pseudonym was a reference to Thomas de Torquemada, which who was an especially cruel Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition. I didn't expect that. Nobody <laughs> expects the Spanish Inquisition. So originally, Kane's Jawbone was published in 1930 within a collection of other puzzles also written by the same guy, and then was republished as a standalone in 2019. And both times, it was published with a cash prize attached for the first person to solve the puzzle within a year. It is a hundred-page... Oh. Prose narrative with pages in the wrong order. Every page begins and ends with a complete sentence. So first, you have to determine the correct page order, 
And then you have to determine the victims and the murderers. And I believe there are six murders that are that happen within the pages. So it's really, really, really difficult. There's hundreds of possible combinations, but there's actually only one solution that has never been made public. Only four people have ever solved it. After the original 1930s publication, two people solved it and submitted on the same day, totally unrelated. And the one whose letter was opened first won the prize. And they did give a consolation prize to the second person. But the solution wasn't recorded and was eventually just lost to time. Until Hmm. it resurfaced in a small literary museum called Shandy Hall which was the former home of writer Lawrence Stern. And now we're going to take a brief detour into Lawrence Stern because he was famous famous for publishing books that pushed the boundaries of like the novel form. So his most famous book called The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, included like random tangents, like what we go on, and totally like blank pages, pages that were pl- printed completely blackened at one point it looks it's made to look like a 10 page chapter is just been ripped out because the narrator didn't want to include it anymore and it challenges like the idea of there being a beginning middle and end of the narration so the museum shandy hall the curator patrick wildgust was determined to find a solution so he published a letter in the guardian in 2016 asking if anyone knew of the solution. A man named John Price sees it. John Price had done the same thing in 1988. He published a letter in a crossword magazine trying to connect with somebody who knew the solution. So back in the 1980s, he connected with a person living in a nursing home who sent him the solution and the correct page order. The unnamed resident of the nursing home had solved the puzzle following the original publication and had a congratulatory note from the author confirming that he had correctly solved it. That's the third solve that we know of. So this museum curator, Wild Gus, republishes the puzzle in 2019 through crowdfunding. And the fourth solve was made by John Finnamore, who's a British writer and comedian, who solved the puzzle while stuck at home during the COVID-19 lockdown. Yeah, he he put out a statement basically saying, like, he first got the book and was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to solve this, and put it aside. And then once everything went into lockdown, he dug it back out again and managed to solve it. Be fun. Just go, like, full, like, Pepe Silva, have, mm-hmm. like, your pin board with, like, threads well, running yeah. around. Well, yeah, and this is published in a bound book. I, I believe the original was published as, like, a series of note cards so that you didn't have to, like, rip the pages out of the book and move them around. But I think there's actually a TikToker now who is attempting to resolve it again. And so, like, she posts updates, and you should see, like, her wall is just, like, all of the pages of the book are taped up on the wall with like strings running through them and it looks exactly like that it's always sunny silva that's Mm -hmm. what i said yeah so fun fact and this is the last fun fact of this episode we're coming full circle back to the bible the title of the book cain's jawbone references the weapon that is supposedly used in the first ever murder cain killed abel with a donkey jawbone 
Okay, I was curious if it was king as in, you know, the mm-hmm. biblical one. Yeah. And uh, that's Maybe. all I got to tell you about whodunits. Obviously, like, I I love Agatha Christie. And the reason I love whodunits and that kind of style is because they're not, like, they're not scary. They're cozy. They're cozy books and, like, cozy movies cozy that are, movie. like, really fun. Yeah. It's often, I mean, it's fiction. So the big difference is, like, if it was true crime... I mean, you would feel a lot more guilty. Like, we want to give precedent to the victim and the victim's family over, like, the murderer and the interesting facts of the case. (laughs) Oh, for being like, this was so awesome. Mm -hmm. Sorry for your loss, bro. Fight death, though. The good thing with all these whodunits is that, obviously, it's a fictional murder. And the whole point is to, like, pick through all the different clues that are intentionally laid out determine what's legitimate what's a red herring and then see if you can solve the mystery alongside the detective in the book and i just i think they're really fun i think it's a really unique style of writing and i encourage everybody to check it out yeah well i've actually read some whodunits in my i remember as a wee lad i had i think it was must have my dad's book maybe i read like my grandmother's or something I don't know if it was written in the 50s or 70s or the 30s, but I remember reading it. And it's funny how just the passage of time can impact your ability to solve this whodunit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So like, I'll I'll set you up the scenario with the facts. Maybe, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not going to give you, remember all of them, but there's two that I can remember that stick in my head. And one of them, I was just like, how are you ever supposed to figure this out? Because it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, my husband was alive and then I I went to bed early, you know, just after supper. And then my alarm went off at nine o'clock in the morning and I got up and he was dead. And the detective's like, I know you killed your husband and I'll prove it. Turn to page 47 for the answer. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, how do you prove it? Do you know how? No. Not rhetorical question. Oh, wait, no, wait. Is it because she said her husband was murdered? Oh, and no. And there's no evidence of... Okay, sorry. All right. Yeah, I got yeah, too yeah. excited. I mean, yeah, no. It's... So, again, because it's... I, I, I've actually given you a, a hint that, that works on two levels. So I said it's about the passage of time, right? And the alarm clock going off. So the alarm clock is the key thing. And so in this book written in the olden days, the detective is like, ha, huh, how could how could you have gone to bed just after supper, which in the old times we all know is like four thirty, mm-hmm. and your alarm went off at nine? Because how would you set your alarm for Whoa. nine o'clock in the morning and it not go off at nine o'clock at oh, night or something so like smart. that? And, but like obviously, you know, even as a kid in the nineties, it's like the digital alarm clock. You set it for nine for nine a.m. It's yeah. not going off at nine p.m., dummy. Yeah. But like in in nineteen oh whatever, that was the case. Yeah, there's so, a lot of or, things like that in like the Agatha Christie books. Not not so explicit yeah. as that, but things that, you know, that was the the era of like the party line for telephones. And yeah. so I remember in an Agatha Christie book I was reading, there's a reference to, I believe it's Miss Marple being on the phone and hearing a noise in the background that they rec- she recognizes. Now I might be conflating this with Anne of Green Gables. But let's use the end of Green Gables example. She's on the phone with her friend Diana and she hears in the background the chime of a clock that is very distinctive 
from this other person they know's house. So clearly that person is listening in on the phone, even though they're not participating in the conversation. And you're like, well, how does this work? It's because it's a party line. The entire neighborhood has one phone line. Oh, man, the old days. Wild. Mm -hmm. It would be really interesting to read like a modern with like today's technology whodunit because even like Glass Onion, which is like there's social media in it. It's 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 modern day. And actually, I believe it was filmed during COVID because everybody's masked. It still has this very charming kind of vintage quality to it. Like the the detective is clearly like he's very old fashioned. He's not wearing jeans. He's wearing old-fashioned clothing a lot of the phrases he uses are very old-fashioned and it's if you've like picked him up from the 1930s and plunked him down in this modern day mystery for him to figure it out and i think that that is where part of like the charm lies because if it wasn't kind of bringing in some of that vintage charm then it would just be kind of a sad murder story (laughs) And yeah. instead, it's campy. Like, think about how campy the Clue movie is. Yeah. Yeah. Neat. Well, just to bring all this all back to Batman and, and tie it together. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if you know this, because you're not a huge comic book person. Not hugely, and definitely comic. not DC. Yeah. Well, neither am I. But And I, I just learned this now. Do you know what DC stands for? I do not. What have we just been talking about? Detectives. And what is this? Comics. Whoa. Detective comics. Yeah. I, I just learned that. But so that's where Batman comes from is back when it was just called Detective Comics. He was introduced in Detective Comic issue number 27 as the world's greatest detective. Wow. That's so that's what that's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. So that's why I kept feeling Batman every time we <laughs> talked about like, oh, like the best detective in the English language or, or literature and like most well known. Um, but yeah, so no, ba- Batman is 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 also billed as the world's greatest detective. I would say that Batman is in fact not a detective and is instead a vigilante. But he does such great detective work like where are the other drugs going? <laughs> Swear to me. You know, classic detective stuff, right? Classic. Classic. <laughs> he definitely has that vintage charm that I've been talking yeah. about. Yeah, vintage suave. So, Jade, I promised you some math about salad dressing bottles and the Caspian Sea. That is my requirement. I measure everything in salad dressing. I don't think this is really going to help you because it didn't help me at all. We're going to follow through with it for the meme. So the Caspian Sea, as discussed, is approximately 72,000 cubic kilometers, which is a measurement that doesn't really help anyone understand anything. So, And this is... This is the volume measurement, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, anything cubic is volume for, for any standard measurement. So you could put take 72,000 cubes that are one kilometer by one kilometer by one kilometer, and that's the volume of the Caspian Sea. So in liters, that's 72 quadrillion. And 72 quadrillion is 000 000 000 000 000 000 000. That's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of zeros. And I think I might have misunderstood 
just how phenomenally large a cubic kilometer is. A cubic kilometer is a trillion liters. Which, and I, I know the metric system's the best because it's all just like powers of 10 to convert stuff. But man, going from liters to cubic kilometers just seems like such a massive jump. Like I typed in 72,000 cubic kilometers to liters and Google's like, it's 7.2e plus 16, which is 72 with 15 zeros after it because scientific notation. Anyway, science stuff. It's a lot of zeros, right? As soon as you ask Google a question about numbers and it starts giving you back scientific notation and you're asking for a reasonably normal sized unit, you know that whatever you're asking it about is just huge. So anyway. I have a uh, feeling this is going to be a lot of salad dressing. It, well, it is. The 144 quadrillion or 144,000 trillion, something like that. It's... It's hundreds of thousands so of trillions. So big, it's, we don't know yeah. how to say it. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's not helpful. But then it's longer than a phone number. It is. It's bigger than a phone number. And so to take that to salad dressing, assuming a 500 milliliter salad dressing bottle, we're just going to multiply it by two. So we are 72 quadrillion liters. So if you have half a liter per salad dressing bottle, you have 144 quadrillion i don't know if this helps you visualize the size <laughs> it does not help me visualize the size that's a whole lot of hedgehogs i tell you that i feel like the scientific terminology for that is in fact just a hecton yeah i think a hecton not a hectare right let's not no let's no not no no let's there. not a hecton yeah a whole lot for reference because i know it's not quite a football field which i know is the standard unit of measurement but an Olympic swimming pool is approximately 2.5 million liters of water. And remember, one single cubic kilometer is one trillion. So <laughs> if you have a cubic kilometer of water and you take in enough water to fill an Olympic swimming pool, you've barely made a dent in that cubic kilometer of water. You still have most of a cubic kilometer. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't I also have another question about my favorite subject, murder? You did. Wasn't there a murder lake? I did tease you about the murder lake. And so all I Googled to find it, because I couldn't re remember the name, was lake that murders you and then the mechanism that it murders you with, which I won't quite spoil it yet. But I have since learned that there is not just one lake that murders you. There are three oh, known lakes. That... I mean, technically all lakes could murder you. Yes. This is a lake that can kill you without you being in the water. Oh. Which is the scary part. Huh. Yeah. So this is Lake Nios. It's the most famous one into which this has happened. So there was the Lake Nios disaster of 1986. A limnic eruption is how I'm going to pronounce that in 1986 killed just over 1,700 people living around Lake Nios. An eruption? Uh, yes, a limnic eruption is when CO2 builds up in a lake, in especially the deep waters of the lake, and then at some point reaches a critical mass and it erupts. So if you were watching this lake, you would see all, all these bubbles coming up and be like, huh, what's that? And the next thing you know, you fall asleep and you die. 
Because especially is- when it's a low-lying area. Yeah, it's spooky. Nature's wild in the way it wants to kill you all the time. That is actually fascinating. Yeah. Fun fact. Nature will kill you. <laughs> this is the shiniest fact of them all. Because, <laughs> yeah, so it erupts. And then, especially if you have a low-lying area, that cloud of CO2 will settle into that low-lying area and just suffocate everything in there until it eventually just disperses. So, like I said, it happened in... 1986 in Lake Nyos in Cambodia. Cambodia, I don't know why, I always think is... Sorry, not Cambodia, Cameroon. I always try and mix up Cambodia and Cameroon, and I always assume Cameroon is is in or near Cambodia. Don't know why. It's definitely not. It's in Africa. It's If Africa is a seven, it's in the the, the point where the two lines meet. Okay. Kind of like right across from Brazil. So that's where Lake Nyos is. But there's two other lakes can have this happen. It's usually around volcanic. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask if it's related to volcanoes. Because the other thing I was thinking is there are some bodies of water that smell that are like really sulfuric. Yeah. Um, So I was curious. I assumed it was like gas related. I'm fascinated to learn that you don't even have to be in it or presumably super near it for this to affect you. What yeah. a fun way to go. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, of all the ways, you know, kind of like carbon monoxide poisoning too. Well, hmm. can we have follow-up for follow-up? Because my understanding is that carbon monoxide poisoning is pretty easy because your need to inhale and exhale is not driven by your body's need to get oxygen. It's driven by your body's need to expel carbon dioxide. So when you ingest carbon monoxide, your body's like, hey, I've got no carbon dioxide. This must be fine. And then you fall asleep from oxygen deprivation, and then you die. This is why you don't run generators inside or near windows. Fun fact, don't die. This is something that Canadians know. If you don't live in an area that's typically cold, maybe you got stuck with the Texas ice storms. Do not go in your garage and run your vehicle to stay warm with all the doors closed in the garage. You will die. We don't want that to happen. We want nature to take you out naturally by lake power. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this got dark. Anyway, okay, let's let's bring it back around. It's water lake. It was dark from the beginning. I know. I know. Uh, Anyway, the good news is that this shouldn't happen anymore in Lake Nyos because they've installed a tube basically to burp the lake. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) That's not the term they're using, but that's the term I'm, I'm sharing. There's two other lakes in which this can happen. There is Lake... Monoon, which is actually just down the road from Lake Nyos. Okay, that tracks. I mean, they're same area, similar circumstances. And I guess just for scale, Lake Nyos, tiny little lake, surface area, 1.5 square kilometers, maximum depth. no Caspian Sea. Yeah, I mean, maximum depth, 200 meters, that's respectable depth, but it's not like, it's not top 40 depth for sure. And its volume is 0.15 cubic kilometers. So... Yeah, dropping the bucket. Hardly any salad dressing. Yeah, (laughs) hardly enough salad dressing. So, yeah, we talked about also Lake Monoon, but then can you guess where the third lake that will try and murder you with carbon dioxide is located? Asia. No, also Africa. In the African Great Lakes, Lake Kivu, Kivu, K-I-V-U. So, yeah, it's all coming back to African Great Lakes, baby. I think 
That so. sounds like it would be a, a very cool tour to take. Although, presumably, there's not a whole lot to see. You can't see the gas. <laughs> Maybe yeah. from afar, if you had some binoculars from a safe distance, you could watch the lake bubble. You could look, look at the burp tube. But there's <laughs> not a whole lot going on beyond that. Yeah. And just to further rabbit hole a little bit, I'm looking at the Limnic Eruption Wikipedia page. And it talks about, you know, historically, it's hard to track this down, right? We don't know how many lakes this has happened to. Because what happens? Everyone around the lake mysteriously dies. Someone else walks up and goes, huh, what happened here? I'm and not then going leaves. to st- Yeah, there that is. That is so interesting. I wonder if there was ever instances in which circumstances like that were mistaken for like witchcraft or like divine intervention. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there is. Um, I didn't get too into the actual like surrounding geography of Lake Nios, but I would think that part of what causes folks to die is like a low-lying area for the the gas to accumulate in. Obviously, if you have this lake at the top of a mountain, you're going to have this bubble of CO2 roll down, but hopefully pass by beforehand. But I do find a historical account by the Roman historian Plutarch. This lake near Rome, they report it kind of like erupting and like flooding everything, despite there not being any big rain or overflowing rivers coming in. So this is proposed as one theory as to how that lake spontaneously overflowed is from from this limbic eruption kind of causing a big bubble to pop and, and water so slosh out. Yep. And it destroyed vineyards, the wine. Oh no. <laughs> anyway, that's as far as I'll go. So well, that was fascinating. Yeah. That's the murder. I lake. would love to hear a podcast maybe in a future episode about like hot springs, volcanoes, other instances in where we have lakes boiling, because I know that that happens. Mm. I think that would all be fascinating. So put that in the bucket for maybe a future episode. If you like this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. You can find us at Fun Fact Collectors on Instagram and Twitter. If you have suggestions for future episodes or just want to share your favorite fun facts, feel free to send us an email at headnerds at funfactcollectors.com. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, check out the show notes. This has been Fun Fact Collectors. See you next week. See you next week.